Hello and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I am here with a wonderful group of actors that are going to lead us through the final act, Act 5 of King Henry IV, Part 1. How bloodily the sun begins to peer above yon bulky hill. The day looks pale at his distemperature. The southern wind doth play the trumpet to his purposes and by his hollowing, whistling in the leaves foretells a tempest and a blustering day. Then with the losers, let it sympathize, for nothing can seem foul to those that win. How now, my lord of Worcester, tis not well that you and I should meet upon such terms as now we meet. You have deceived our trust and made us doff our easy robes of peace to crush our old limbs in ungentle steel. This is not well, my lord. This is not well. What say you to it? Will you again unknit this churlish knot of all aboard war and move in that obedient orb again where you did give a fair and natural light and be no more an exhaled meteor, a prodigy of fear, and a portent of broached mischief to the unborn times? Hear me, my liege. For mine own part, I could be well content to entertain the lag end of my life with quiet hours, for I protest, I have not sought this day of this dislike. You have not sought it. How comes it then? Rebellion lay in his way, and he found it. Peace, Chewit, peace. It pleased your majesty to turn your looks of favor from myself and all our house. And yet, I must remember you, my lord. We were the first and dearest of your friends. For you, my staff of office, did I break in Richard's time, and posted day and night to meet you on the way and kiss your hand when yet you were in place and in account nothing so strong and fortunate as I. It was myself, my brother, and his son that brought you home and boldly did outdare the dangers of the time. You swore to us, and you did swear that oath at Doncaster that... You did nothing's purpose against the state, nor claim no further than your new fallen right, the seat of Gaunt, Dukedom of Lancaster. To this we swore our aid. But in a short space, it rained down fortune showering on your head, and such a flood of greatness fell on you. What with our help, what with the absent king, what with the injuries of a wanton time, that seeming sufferances that you had borne, and the contrarious winds that held the king so long in his unlucky Irish wars, that all in England did repute him dead. And from this swarm of fair advantages, you took occasion to be quickly wooed to gripe the general sway into your hand, forgot your oath to us at Doncaster, and being fed by us, you used us so, as that ungentle gull, the cuckoo's bird, uses the sparrow, did oppress our nest, grew by our feedings to so great a bulk that even our love durst not come near your sight for fear of swallowing, but with nimble wing we were enforced for safety's sake to fly out of your sight and raise this present head, whereby we stand opposed by such means as you yourself had forged against yourself by unkind usage, dangerous countenance, and violation of all faith and troth sworn to us in your younger enterprise." These things, indeed, you have articulate, proclaimed at market crosses, read in churches, to face the garment of rebellion, 
with some fine color that may please the eye of fickle changelings and poor discontents, which gape and rub the elbow at the news of hurly-burly innovation. And never yet did insurrection want such watercolors to impaint his cause, nor moody beggars starving for a time of pell-mell havoc and confusion. In both your armies, there is many a soul shall pay full dearly for this encounter, if once they join in trial. Tell your nephew, the Prince of Wales doth join with all the world in praise of Henry Percy. By my hopes, this present enterprise sets off his head. I do not think a braver gentleman, more active valiant or more valiant young, more daring or more bold is now alive to grace this latter age with noble deeds. For my part, I may speak it to my shame, I have a truant been to chivalry. And so here he doth account me to, yet this before my father's majesty, I am content that he shall take the odds of his great name and estimation and will to save the blood on either side, try fortune with him in a single fight. And Prince of Wales, so dare we venture thee, albeit considerations infinite do make against it. No, good Worcester, no. We love our people well, even those we love that are misled upon your cousin's part. And will they take the offer of our grace, both he and they and you? Yea, every man shall be my friend again, and I'll be his. So tell your cousin, and bring me word what he will do. But if he will not yield, rebuke and dread correction wait on us, and they shall do their office. So be gone. We will not now be troubled with reply. We offer fair, take it advisedly. It will not be accepted on my life. The Douglas and the Hotspur both together are confident against the world in arms. Hence, therefore, every leader to his charge, for on their answer we will set on them, and God befriend us as our cause is just. Hell, if thou see me down in the battle and stride me so, Tis a point of friendship. Nothing but a colossus can do thee that friendship. Say thy prayer and farewell. I would twere bedtime, Hal, and all well. <laughs> Why, thou owest God a death. Is not due yet. I would be loath to pay him before this day. What need I be so forward with him that calls on me? Well, tis no matter. Honor pricks me on. Yea, but how if honor prick me off when I come on? How then? Can honor set to a leg? No. Or an arm? No. Or take away the grief of a wound? No. Honor hath no skill in surgery then? No. What is honor? In word. What is in that word, honor? What is that honor? Air, a trim reckoning. Who hath it? He that died a Wednesday. Doth he feel it? No. Doth he hear it? No. Is insensible then? Yea, to the dead. But will it not live with the living? No. Why? Detraction will not suffer it. Therefore, I'll none of it. Honor is a mere scutcheon. And so ends my catechism. 
Lovely. Wonderful. Um, quite a scene. Um, one of the things I love about this scene is we get a little taste of each world in this scene. We get a taste of the, the king and the court and politics. We get um, to hear yet again a sort of justification of, for the rebellion. And then we get the sort of Falstaffian summation of like, this is all bullshit, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, thoughts. <laughs> it's always struck me is interesting and I, I can't really explain why, but I always find it, um, yeah, I guess interesting is the only word I can think of that the king is suaded, you know, that he's, he's like, meh. I sort of did some of those things, didn't I, you know? Um, and, and does offer some sort of treaty. I mean, he, it, it's interesting, especially in this time, to hear someone talk about, like, oh, no, I will be king to everyone again. Um, is it certainly has echoes. But it does give, you know, there, I don't feel like there's a lot of empathy towards Henry IV in this play, you know, he's doing, hmm. he's talking badly about his son, you know, he's, he's kind of cranky about the fact that he can't go to the war he wants to, but this does show some very, um, some very like really strong leadership quality, I think, even to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think one of my favorite, um, it's like everyone just starts using pretty cool imagery here. And um, I love in that that first big king speech um, talking about, will you will you sort of come to peace and be at peace with nature and stop being something that causes fear and panic and come to the obedient celestial orb again, which is just an incredible image. And then the the king's imagery with the the watercolors to and paint like you've used these you've you've diluted your reasons um in order to make them palatable essentially is what i think he's saying to well, to recruit people yeah it's like the big propaganda com campaign you know yeah. of sending sending out and every in the churches and in the you know on twitter <laughs> yeah. uh, you know what i mean and so i just couldn't help but hear that that resonance uh, oh absolutely i think uh, their twitter was probably like tiny little sparrows just like twittering around <laughs> but i totally agree yeah d <laughs> I'm, i was just you know in listening to lynn i was just so taken with just these couple of lines around line 75 would gape and rub the elbow at the news of hurly burly innovation. Yeah. That, that juxtaposition is, is just so startling to me. Quite oh. something. I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mitch, did you have something as well? Oh, I, I also like that moment, actually, like these, these people who are going to be um, like excited by something uh, bad happening, right, by there being some action. I really like that image. I, I was going to say that I'm struck just in this, these first moments by how, um, like Hal hears the, the wind rustling in the leaves and I, this like sensory aliveness mm. uh, in the morning before a battle starts feels very true to me that like with 
your death potentially being so imminent that that you would suddenly like become more aware of like these little sensory things in life absolutely that's a wonderful point um i (laughs) was trying to title this first bit before Worcester and Vernon came in and I came up with a red sun rises, blood will be spilt this night. <laughs> um, but I, it, it's, 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 again, nature is, is messing with us here. Nature is telling us to beware. Um, Andrew. There's uh, another Lord of the Rings echo in <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you've made us doff our easy robes of peace to crush our old limbs in ungentle steel. Mm. And in uh, Return of the King, there's a um, a moment when Denethor pulls off his kingly robes and reveals that he sleeps in chain mail and armor every <laughs> night to keep himself uh, fit. Hmm. I like to see that. And I like <laughs> when Shakespeare awesome. makes a uh, Lord of the Rings reference. <laughs> also, I was thinking about <laughs> Vernon and how, <laughs> and how uh, Vernon just stands here, right? And that makes me think about how he goes uh, to to parlay or, or whatever and is uh, present and then comes back, but doesn't say anything, and then comes back to reveal these uh, his observations in such um, uh, powerful language. So that kind of gives me a little uh, cue into, into what Vernon does in his capacity as a listener and a watcher. Absolutely. I think that that's a wonderful point. And I I remember in staging it, it was very important to me that Vernon was there. And in fact, at one point sort of calmed Worcester down because I allowed the Worcester to have the one moment of open anger in this speech and that Vernon was like, hang on, hang on, hold up, hold up. <laughs> let's, let's not give away, like, let's, let's be cool here. But it, it is, again, like, um, Worcester also gets these incredible nature images with the, the, the cuckoo um, that, that the, the legend, I don't actually know if this is sort of biologically correct, but the sort of idea is that cuckoos take over other birds' nests and like will destroy their young. I've heard and, that. Yeah. 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 So there's, there's something very, there's a lot of really interesting bird imagery in this, in this play I've noticed. I mean, there's, there's all the, all the times like twice Falstaff mentions wild ducks mm-hmm. and there's, of course there's capons and um, there's this imagery of Hal being like feathered mercury. And there's, there's a lot of hawking um, uh, terminology that's put into this. And I don't know what the significance of that is, but it's, it's, um, it's interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. Mitch. Well, I was going to say, um, I had looked up that cuckoo thing as well. And I think what it actually also is, is that like, uh, the cuckoo lays the egg in the sparrow's nest and then the sparrow raises its child, right? Like hatches the egg and raises its child. And then eventually the, the cuckoo becomes big and starts like killing the sparrow's children right right? like it sort of takes over the nest so this imagery is then followed by like or or maybe beforehand the king um the king talks about like being a prodigy being an unnatural omen unnatural but something unnatural that's taking over and then that worcester responds with that is really interesting it's like against nature um is what they're both accusing each other of 
Absolute unnaturalness. Yeah, Sam. I think that there's actually like a pretty little interesting uh, how thing that happens here. It's the first time we ever see him give a monologue to the nobility, like a publicly to the nobility. Yeah. Um, and every other scene that he's been in before, uh, he's had direct address to the audience. He's talked at length with uh, a lot of lower class people and he's been with his father in private. But this is the first time he actually gives a speech with not just the nobility of his father's camp around, but with the other side there. Mm -hmm. um, and that speech feels like a departure from the language that Hal has been using up until this point as well. It's very clear, it's very direct, it is very to the point of what he's saying. It is not overly gilded in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, it's very easy to follow and it is very princely. And I think it's also really important that um, he offers his life in order for no uh, buddy's blood to be spilled. And, and I do think that as I think Kelly was saying before, sort of the King admitting that there is faults. And I think earlier in the play, the King had been like, I'm sure I did things to piss you off. Can, can you tell me what they are so I can actually address them without us going to war? And I do think that there is this interesting creeping um, concern for the common person that is definitely being highlighted um, in those two characters. I also think that the shutting down of um, Falstaff is really interesting here. Yeah. It's very clear, very crisp, and is like, this is not a place for your antics, dude. Yeah. There's no fat joke. There's no loving. It's just peace. And then uh, Ari, what is what is? Uh, did I pronounce that right? Chew it. Chew it. Yeah. Chew it. Chew it. It sort of means like a, a chatterer or jackdaw, kind of uh, just like all right, enough. But I think there's also. It's funny because it's such a funny joke that he makes. Yeah. Like I, I totally give the other like Blunt and Westmoreland and like even King Henry like license to be like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Rebellion was lying on the road. He picked it up and that's why we're here. You know, like there's something weirdly, um, weirdly insightful about that very simple joke. Um, you know, to quote Yogi Berra, when you come to a fork in the road, take it, you know, it's like, it's kind of like, yeah, that's kind of like what, what, what that joke is, 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 is about. Um, and I also just love the, just to sort of switch gears to talk about Falstaff. I, I, I love this moment right with him and Hal alone. There's something so childlike about what Falstaff says, I, I would twer bedtime, Hal, and all well. Like it just, there's something so surprisingly innocent to me about that line. There's something so childlike. Um, and then we go into this speech, which on the surface is, I think, extremely funny. But when you really get into what it means, it's supremely dark. And profound um, and yeah. very profound and yeah. could be done, I think, very easily with a deep cynicism and bitterness um, about everything he's just witnessed and and what the consequences of, of that are going to be. Um, how is this, uh, what were your thoughts about this speech, Dee, as you were, as you were reading it? 
I, you know, Ariana, I, I agree. It, it, it can be and has been, I'm sure, interpreted in myriad ways. And, mm. and it would be really interesting, I think, to, to work with it in a number, from a number of different perspectives and approaches because it's, it, it's got, there's just so much to it. And it mm -hmm. is, as I say, it is so profound. Um, it seems to me, this is the one, one of the very few times that Falstaff is really direct, uh, clear, yeah. and perhaps honest. Mm, that's a wonderful observation. I, I like what you say about direct and clear, because I think Falstaff is very witty, but yeah. wit doesn't always necessarily mean going from point A to point B. It's right. it's usually means yeah. going from point A to A1 to A2 to A3, and then finally getting to B, um, which I think that that your speech about your soldiers is a little bit like that. Yeah, and in contrast with his, with his other speeches, this yeah. is quite, quite different. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's basically like a series of, uh, I mean, as he said, it's his catechism, right? It's mm -hmm. his question and answering, but he's going through it by himself. And it's really kind of could be interpreted in a way, I think, as a series of antitheses, which is one of yeah. Shakespeare's favorite rhetorical devices. Right. Um, and he, but in, you know, it's, it's just such a negative in, in, in that it's, it's a denial of, um, of sort of received, the received wisdom that we've had so far about honor from, from Hotspur. Right, right. And this is such a sort of reversal of that. But I don't think, again, I think this is why, this is why we keep talking about Shakespeare, you know, 400 years later is, I don't think he's saying that one version of honor is more legitimate than the other. I think he's saying both are entirely legitimate. I and agree. Even if they are on opposite sides of the spectrum. Yeah, Mitch. Well, and, and it strikes me that I, I totally think this is the opposite pole to Hotspur. Both of these perspectives sort of lead to ruin, though, <laughs> right? Like Falstaff sends all of these men to their deaths mm -hmm. that they're not prepared for, right? He loses almost his entire army by not all respecting it. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> and and Hotspur dies himself and presumably loses a lot of his, you know, loses the, the battle uh, and, and the war, um, which, yeah, that's interesting and that strikes me. Yeah, I, I absolutely. Um, Can I, I, I ask a question, oh, Ariana? Yeah, please, please. Why is Falstaff at the top of Act 5? Why is he part of this group? <laughs> Really Why is he here? Question. <laughs> it was inevitable, right? Yeah. It is a really good question. Like I always kind of like the the thought that Falstaff was like going to find Hal and kind of stumbled into the tent where all these people are. Okay. And yeah. then he's just like Oops. there and he's yeah. like technically like a commander of a small battalion of, of yes. soldiers. So, yeah. It's just, but he just would be so out of place. Right. I also right. think that it's a way to boost the number on the King's side because mm. uh, Westmoreland cannot be in this scene because he is the surety for Worcester and Vernon's safe return. So you have to only, you can only have a few people with the King of the, of the named character. So in a way it, it like, it also serves to tell us that he did indeed get to the camp, <laughs> which we weren't sure if he was going to get there if in the previous gonna, scene. I, too drunk. Um, yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Sam. 
Um, to, to shift topics, and I, I was wondering how you dealt with this as a director, actually, because this happens in Shakespeare plays a bunch, where a character, nobody's talked about Hal's swordsmanship for this entire play, right? Have I missed anybody mark him as like a good swordsman at all no. in this play? No. Right, so this is a thing that show, crops up often in Shakespeare plays where characters who are given no combat, like there's some characters who are built up as these really boss, amazing fighters like Hotspur. And then there's these characters that nobody has ever talked about them holding really a sword before. And they end up in a fight with one of those people and then they kill them. Yeah. Um, and so I was wondering like, Hal's offer here while noble to die for everybody seems great, but like, as an audience member at this point in time, I'd be like, he's going to murder you. <laughs> like, what, what are you doing, Hal? Like, he's Hotspur. He hangs out He hangs out with the Douglas and Glendower. Like, you are not in that league. And then later on, you are supposed to be asked that that actually is a thing that resolves. So I, I just was wondering how you, is there, and this props up in other plays. Yeah. So like, what Juliet do you do too, with I think. that? I mean, uh, to a certain extent, Hamlet too, right? They talk yeah. about how Laertes is like a really good sword fighter for that play. And then yeah. they don't really talk about Hamlet's combat abilities all that much, if at all. And so this like crops up over and over again. I was wondering how you deal with that because that seems like a very boastful like to me as a modern day audience member, I, it drops me out for a second where I'm like, no, you'll die. Like, yeah. I know that you'll live cause there's a Henry four part two, but like <laughs> you'll die. Well, I, what I will say is that in terms of the, the stage combat, I had a, quite a few conversations with my fight choreographer and we decided that Hotspur and Hal fight very differently. Hotspur has like the sort of classic martial um, trained, beautiful technique style. And Hal was a little bit looser. He was a little bit more, cause he hangs out with thieves and cut purses. He was a little bit more like street fighty kind of. And that ended up being what um, he got pummeled in the fight before he won though. And I think that's really, really, really important that it doesn't look like immediately <laughs> Hal is going to win. Like he got the shit beat out of him. And actually, even in the, the fight before with Douglas, he got the shit beat out of him even more. And he ended up, um, the, the actual reason that uh, Douglas was so bruised and was captured was he bruised his groin. Like he bruised his manly jewels. Um, and we were like, well, we've got to put that into the play. Yeah. So um, so how like let out this like, pummel bash that went right at his sporen which is at the front of the kilts and he uh had a wonderful comedic exit um but i think it, it is really important to take that into account dramaturgically and to it also makes the fight more exciting if it, you really feel like the person who wins is about to get killed and then all of a sudden out of nowhere you're like oh shit they won yeah, Koi, being an amazing fight choreographer yourself, please do <laughs> jump in oh, on it. I'm 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 behind you. You said it great. I just there's a there's a show that I really like called Samurai Champloo, which is a an anime show where the two main characters are very different styles. One is a traditional kind of samurai and the other one is more of a freeloading came from a, a pirate background and the two of them are, are kind of frenemies the whole time and they're you never know who would win in a fight and they're constantly putting off their fight because they have other things that are more important um so that's just like a good example i thought based on what you were describing but what i was going to say what i heard from this issue that sam brought up i found it really funny actually that 
one of the first things we hear from Prince Hal is this wonderful uh, speech about, you know, I'm, I'm just baiting my time and I'm going to take over and be the son and it'll be so great. And everyone's like, oh yeah, this is cool. And then the first time he says it out loud, he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to this guy and we'll fight one on one and I'll totally kill him. And everyone's like, uh, how about not? And let's move on with some real ideas there, Hal. He's like, this was my thing. Like I was going to totally do this. I don't know. For me, that's, I find that quite funny. <laughs> like, oh, I just, absolutely. <laughs> Cause I, I mean, I, I love Samurai Champloo too, but like you've established, I, I was just like, cause I would definitely, if we like were mounting this, I'd take you aside and I'd be like, where does this like actual confidence come from? Like in his abilities to fight and, and more so than, oh, he's a trained bit of the nobility and all these men would know how to fight. And like, sure, you've been like in scraps and you have like this feeling, but where like, where did the cojones come from, even at the beginning of the play to challenge one of the, again, what is established and important to understand is this play. Like that would be a serious thing that I would have to take time to talk to you about, to understand where that bulletproof confidence is throughout it. And I mean, I love the idea of how you went about staging it where he's losing and losing and losing and wins in the final bit, but it is just such this moment of like, to me, just like utter surprise that even he think like for such a smart, witty, on top of it, human being in every other aspect of their life, I, I would, that would just be like a thing that I would like need time to dig in and work through to find the through line for, I think. Absolutely. Well, I think that it's, it's interesting you're saying that because when we, I was listening to you all read it, I was so thunderstruck by the prince declaring this out loud, like you were saying, like what a, what a speech to say. It feels like such a ripe moment for silent reactions and covering and posturing from the king, from Falstaff, from from everybody, because it 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 felt like it and it felt almost like I wanted the text to like give us a minute to process that a bit more. Because <laughs> I almost was like, wait, did they already talk about this? Does the king already know he's gonna say this? This is wild. He kind of like the king is speaking and then the prince is like, and also I have something to say for the first time ever. So yeah, this just this is a wild scene. And I think it would be, it would be fun to kind of watch. It kind of makes me think a bit about Spider-Man though, not to make this about Spider-Man, but like, like that he's so young that he's just kind of like, I've told my dad, I'm going to prove it to myself. And like, he sort of says it and then goes like, fuck, I really am going to have to do that. <laughs> but is he young enough to believe that he's in, like invincible? I don't know. It's, it's a fascinating little moment. Uh, Coy and then Mitch. Yeah. If I were to um, fight direct the show and answer an actor's question, like if Sam presented his question, I would say that Hal being the, the heir apparent probably wasn't pushed that much in formal training. So probably got a lot of free wins. Um, he did have formal training, so he's going to be better than most of the fighters who are the thieves he's working with. But because he's also trained with the thieves, he has a kind of dirty side to his combat, which wouldn't be expected by Hotspur. So he's he has this interesting kind of combination of styles, which would allow him to better thieves who are untrained and be sneaky enough for people who are trained. And then the confidence comes from a combination of that mix of styles with the fact that anyone who knows who he is probably lets him win. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Mitch. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um whatever i think this is an, a moment that's ripe for justifications from a production and ripe for questions but i think that regardless of what those answers are we are we're right to note this as a really striking moment yeah. um for all the reasons that have been noted this is the first time that hal comes up and says this and this moment has been foreshadowed a couple times 
times. Like the first mm-hmm. thing that Hal tells us when he speaks to the audience in his soliloquy is like, I'm going to redeem my time when men think least I will. Right. And, and the fact that I've been a truant is going to make this more striking and Vernon in recounting it in the next scene, like it totally works on Vernon at the very <laughs> least. Right. He's very struck by this moment. Um, and then the other time it's been foreshadowed is how to his dad at the moment mm-hmm. that he convinces his dad to trust him. He says like, I'm going to, I'm going to kill Percy. Right. I'm going to meet him. Absolutely. And I think um, there's, there's also to me, there needs to be a reason and I, and this, I actually, definitely, this was a, a scene that I gave a lot of rehearsal time to, um, because there needs for me to be a reason why is Hal bringing this up now? And the justification that I found for it was that it's really provocative and really insulting what the king has just said to Worcester right beforehand. And this is a very, very heated argument, but they're fighting each other with words. And this was a way of, as chaos is about to erupt, Hal steps in and essentially says, here's a new thought. Here's a new thought. I, I, we're, we're all entrenched in our own ideological convictions. I will offer myself as, it, it, so it was his way of, 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 of trying to show some leadership and balance and a very unstable situation, um, which may or may not have worked, but it, it, to me, it, like needed a justification for that, for that moment. Yeah, Kelly. I just also think it goes to your point of the King and Worcester are clearly men of the past. You know, mm-hmm. this is about past grievances and what happened and not what's happening now. Mm-hmm. And Hal steps in and he's like, okay, we're taking it to now. Like this is today. This is what yeah. I'm going to do. Um, and it just very much in the theme of what we've been talking about as far as like being part of the past, the present or the future. Mm, that's yeah, that's lovely. Um, and actually uh, great transition, Kelly, um, let us move on to five, two and this amazing moment between Worcester and Vernon before the rest of our rebellion comes in where they're sort of discussing what just happened. It's a very interesting perspective. Have fun. <laughs> All right. Oh no, my nephew must not know, Sir Richard, the liberal and kind offer of the king. T'were best he did. Then are we all undone? It is not possible, it cannot be, the king should keep his word in loving us. He will suspect us still and find a time to punish this offense and other faults. Supposition all our lives shall be stuck full of eyes, for treason is but trusted like the fox who... Never so tame, so cherished, and locked up, will have a wild trick of his ancestors. Look how we can, or sad, or merrily, interpretation will misquote our looks, and we shall feed like oxen at a stall. The better cherished still, the nearer death. My nephew's trespass may be well forgot. It hath the excuse of youth, and heat of blood, and an adopted name of privilege, hair-brained Hotspur, governed by a spleen. All his offenses live upon my head and on his father's. We did train him on, and his corruption being taken from us, we, as the spring of all, shall pay for all. Therefore, good cousin, let not Harry know, in any case, the offer of the king. Deliver what you will. I'll say it is so. Here comes your cousin. My uncle is returned. Deliver up, my lord of Westmoreland. Uncle, what news? The king will bid you battle presently. Defy him by the lord of Westmoreland. 
Lord Douglas, go you and tell him so. Mary, and shall, and very willingly. There is no seeming mercy in the king. Did you beg any? God forbid. I told him gently of our grievances, of his oath-breaking, which he mended thus by now forswearing that he is forsworn. He calls us rebels, traitors, and will scourge with haughty arms this hateful name in us. Arm, gentlemen, to arms, for I have thrown a brave defiance in King Henry's teeth, and Westmoreland that was engaged did bear it, which cannot choose but bring him quickly on. The Prince of Wales stepped forth before the king, and nephew challenged you to single fight. Ooh, would the quarrel lay upon our heads, and that no man might draw short breath today, but I and Harry Monmouth. Tell me, tell me, how showed his tasking? Seemed it in contempt? No, by my soul. I never in my life did hear a challenge urged more modestly. Unless a brother should a brother dare to gentle exercise and proof of arms, he gave you all the duties of a man, trimmed up your praises with a princely tongue, spoke your deservings like a chronicle, making you ever better than his praise by still dispraising praise valued with you, and which became him like a prince indeed, he made a blushing sidel of himself, and chid his truant youth with such a grace as if he mastered there a double spirit of teaching and of learning instantly. There he did pause. But let me tell the world, if he outlived the envy of this day, England did never owe so sweet a hope, so much misconstrued in his wantonness. Cousin, I think thou art enamored on his follies. Never did I hear of any prince so wild a liberty. But be he as he will. Yet once ere night, I will embark him with a soldier's arm, that he shall shrink under my courtesy. Arm, arm, with speed, and fellow soldiers, friends, better consider what you have to do than I, that have not well the gift of tongue, can lift your blood up with persuasion. My lord, here are letters for you. I cannot read them now. Oh, gentlemen, the time of life is short. To spend that shortness basely were too long if life did ride upon a dial's point, still ending at the arrival of an hour. And if we live... We live to tread on kings. If die, brave death when princes die with us. Now for our consciences, the arms are fair when the intent of bearing them is just. My lord, prepare. The king comes on apace. I thank him that he cuts me from my tail, for I profess not talking, only this. Let each man do his best. And here draw I a sword whose temper I intend to stain with the best blood that I can meet with all in the adventure of this perilous day. Now, Esperance, Percy, and set on. Sound all the lofty instruments of war, and by that music let us all embrace, for heaven to earth, some of us never shall a second time do such a courtesy. Wow, wow, wow. Quite a final um, moment with our, with our rebellion before the battle starts. Um, what do you think of that first speech there, Kelly? <laughs> I'm, you know, people will do a lot of things to save their own skin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really interesting that if you compare Worcester in the beginning of this play to the end, 
it goes from this like sweeping oh this is for you know it's like god and country type thing and this person that we helped put on the throne is wrong and so we have to like sort of right this wrong and we'll form this rebellion to being like yeah so they'll forgive the kid <laughs> but then they're gonna go after the dads yeah so we're just not gonna tell him <laughs> um which you know it's is we if this is a play about fathers and sons you know contrasting the journey of the king and hal to to the abandonment once again of poor hotspur i mean they yeah. it's like his dad literally doesn't show up and then his <laughs> uncle's like i'm just gonna lie to him so he'll fight and essentially you know then sentences him to death um it's pretty it's it's pretty terrifying stuff it's very mob-esque this play <laughs> just keep thinking of like oh i gotta go to the families the families are fighting yeah yeah i just want to defend worcester here for two seconds <laughs> because like I think that Hotspur's dad not showing up is atrocious. Like that is definitely bad, but I do not think that Worcester's logic here is bad or wrong. And we talked about Machiavelli earlier to accept this piece is to die later. There is no way that a good king would let those that took up arms in his country survive. That would be the very definition of a bad king. And we know that Bolingbroke is a political animal from, from the last play. And I do not have a single doubt in my mind that any of these people, no matter what the king says here, just in a very realpolitik way, that Worcester's um, uh, scan of the situation is incorrect. And if Percy, for any reason, stops the fight right here, right now, they might not all be dead tomorrow, but within like the next five years, they will all be dead, um, mm -hmm. including I think Hotspur in, in all of this, no matter what happens. So I, I forgive Worcester a little bit more here than I do uh, Hotspur's father for being, what, what's the line from the next play that you said? Craven, uh, not Craven. Um, crafty sick. Crafty sick, <laughs> for being crafty sick. Um, yeah. So I, I will defend, like, this is not a good look for Worcester, but the political sense of what he is saying actually does strike somewhat true to me. It, it seems to me to be like, he'll use this in future attack ads. You know, that's kind of our, our modern equivalent. Like, he'll use, this is never going to be dropped. It is Ever. definitely a kill or be killed society. I yeah. mean, there is there is no alternative. And, you know, we look through this, especially, you know, as Americans, we look, I, I can't help but like look through this as the eyes of like the Civil War being like, but wait, there are leaders that will like take back rebellions. You know, we can be unified. But the fact of the matter is that is such a small, tiny microscopic percentage of history. You know, it really is. I I understand exactly where Sam's coming from. And, you know, it's like the personal thing hurts worse than the political. But if you go with everything as political, he's doing, he's definitely is doing what he thinks is best. It's interesting because I think I feel a mix of what both of you are saying. I mean, I mm -hmm. think for Hotspur, I'm like, I think it's like cruel that his dad pretended to be sick, in my opinion. Yes. But also it's a very like mean girls moment, but also it's like, um, <laughs> 
it's also really cruel that he not only pretended to be sick, but insisted that his son carry it on. That's like Mm. an important part of the thing is that his dad was like, I'm sick. I'm not going to come, but you should keep going. So Hotspur is doing this for his dad. And I think, but I I mean, I think that this, this speech of Worcester's is very frustrating because we want a hero. We want somebody who's like, we want somebody who's like, we got to do the right thing. But, but he also is very smart. And I think it's, it's interesting that like we've had a lot of bird metaphors and, and he chooses obviously the fox and he's like, you know, and he chooses the ox and he chooses like a lot of, I don't know, animal metaphors here and the harebrained hotspur, like that it's, he's thinking very much about survival, I guess. Mm. Um, but it's also such a, I'm sorry. It's so funny. The top of the scene to just start with, Oh no, we're not going to tell this. Like, <laughs> it's like the best cut to ever. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> it like I think when it's when it's done like really well in a production, you always get like a laugh with that first line because the audience is like, "Wait, are you kidding me?" After that whole thing, and you went over and you did the speech, and you no, okay, all right. Um, it is such good writing because <laughs> yeah. because you know they dismiss Worcester without giving a response in the yeah. in the next scene. So you think like, oh, maybe he's going to be like, yeah, this is a great idea, <laughs> and cut to being like, oh, hell no, no, we're not doing that. Well, but that that also puts Hotspur. It's it's the urgent. The stakes are so high because he's really their only hope. Mm, it's so true. You I are Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah. <laughs> I also think it's really funny that the youth don't see any of this. Like in the scene before it, Hal isn't like, Worcester will not accept this deal. He says specifically that it is Hotspur and the Douglas that will not accept this deal. Um, And so just sort of in playing in that generational split, I do think it is interesting that we have the line, it will not be accepted on my life. The Douglas and the Hotspur both together are confident against the world in arms. And then immediately you have the older person being like, we cannot tell Hotspur about this <laughs> whatsoever because peace means we're all dead. <laughs> yeah. Although I think, I think that the, I think Hal has the right idea. I don't think Hotspur would accept this deal because yeah, I think I, it, I he's agree. like, my dad said to do this. I do everything for my dad and my brother. <laughs> they, we also never get to see right we never actually get to see what the younger generation would do because the older generation has so much baggage right like Northumberland and Worcester are basically like the die is cast because we can't trust Henry King Henry right yeah. even he's offering us all the right things here Worcester says right but we can't trust him which is really a lot of chickens coming home to roost for Henry, right? <laughs> this is this is sort of his tragedy is that he's living in this world where he has no credibility and, and authority, like as king. And he has a lot of regrets, which we'll see in, in part two, um, in which he, it's called Henry the Fourth part two. Uh, Henry the Fourth appears in two scenes and does not even appear until act three of the play, which is kind of extraordinary. Um, uh, but his his language in part two, it's like just on a different level. It's 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 pretty extreme. I've always wondered what exactly did Douglas say to Westmoreland? <laughs> like, what is this brave defiance? Did he just like did he like moon him? Did he like what did he do? Well, he, <laughs> I want to know. He lifted up his kilt, right? I mean, <laughs> definitely it's something with his kilt. <laughs> He's so proud of himself. 
Oh, indeed. Yeah. He's, also, his oh, line, so Mary funny. and Shall, and very willingly, the two yeah. of them are just like, yes, we're <laughs> we're in our we're in our element. We're in a buddy comedy. Like, it's so funny. Oh, it's 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 just great. I just yeah. Anyway, I just I really as a side note, I really want to know what did Douglas do. Um, and then moving on, we have um, Vernon's second sort of prophetic Henry the Fifth speech. Um, Andrew, what are what are your th- what are your thoughts on this speech? Um, and how is it different from the the feathered Mercury speech from before? Well, it's interesting that this, so the previous one is just about having seen him mm. and just seeing him get on a horse was enough to evoke that language. But <laughs> now this is about, right? <laughs> now this is about how he talks and, and uh, his grace uh, in terms of social dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's covered both sides of it. Uh, and we're starting to get this picture oddly enough, from somebody on the other side of what Hal looks like as a king uh, or what he could look like potentially and what he could act like. Mm. Um, But I am, I'm, I, it's interesting because Hotspur always comes around and says, I think you're, you're a little too uh, gentle and a little too praiseworthy of this guy who I'm supposed to kill in a little while. Um, yeah. It is interesting that Vernon is placed on the, is someone from the opposing side. Mm. I'm not really sure what to make of that. I guess well, maybe in a way it has to be someone from the other side. Yeah. Otherwise it there is because they, in a weird way, they don't have a vested interest in, in that person being worthy. Um, but it is interesting. There does seem to be uh, this follows Hal into Henry V. The French lords, you know, are mocking at him and saying, "Oh, he was so wild," and blah blah blah. And then when he starts beating them in Agincourt, they go, "Is this the same guy?" That's like somebody says that, which is like such an extraordinary line. Was this the king we we told to ransom himself? Is this the king that was such a wild libertine? Like, who is this guy? There's something like. Yeah, inherently plan- surprising about him yeah Mitch. <laughs> there is well the, the plan is working right his <laughs> reputation glittering over his fault right like is gonna impress people more um and it's for vernon right it's one of the things that he's most impressed by is specifically when he brings up right like his rough youth like it's sort of playing out how hal said it was going to it's not just yeah. his rough youth, I think, that's really important, but it's the amount of praise. Like, so much of Vernon's speech is about the amount of praise that Hal put on Hotspur. And I, I, I disagree with it, like you said before, Ari, but there is such an interesting, like, urge to just play Hal as almost this Machiavellian monster, because the more that Hal praises Hotspur the better the defeat of Hotspur will be. It is very important to the plan as it's been putting on that Hal heaps Hotspur full of praise publicly because if beating him is the quest, that has to be the thing. And then you see it right there with Vernon at the beginning of it. There's like six or seven lines just about the praise that he heaped upon you, Hotspur. Mm -hmm. And so that element of it, I think, is also just really interesting. You you have to, Hal has to build up Hotspur as part of that plan. 
I also wondered listening to Vernon and getting increasingly pissed off that my friend is talking this other guy up. I wondered if that was part of what was so shocking about that Prince moment in the previous scene was that it, maybe it's kind of rare for somebody to so openly praise the person they're like opposing like that. Maybe there's something so unexpected because Hotspur has it in him zero. He has no capacity to give any, any compliment to how or anyone. I mean, he, he says to the, to the Douglas, I think he's it, it, like in act four, it was so funny where he's like, I never flatter people. I don't do that. But like, you're so great. I do have to say you're all right. And so it feels <laughs> like maybe that's what's so princely about how that he was able to be um, complimentary or, and I, and I agree with Sam. I think there's, I think there's maybe potential for both that he like, like a, like a, like a, like a WWE fight, not WWE, like a real fighter, like MMA or whatever, is aware that like, I need to create stakes. Um, but I also think that it might have been kind of a radical thing to say so openly, I'm not that great. And this guy's literally the best thing that there is. Um, because it's what Hotspur is saying all the time, but it's different to have, yeah, I don't know. But I was really pissed as Hotspur. It's like, <laughs> can we not right before I do this, tell me how great and lovely and like, how he's blushing and how he's teaching and learning instantly. Like, all right, we get it. Well, you, you have such a beautiful and jammed response afterwards, which is cousin, I think thou art enamored. That's the line. And then the enjammed on his follies period. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's such a great bit of enjambment and like letting it soar up and then just slamming it back down again. Well, and yeah. also just to be super nerdy, that on his follies is a headless line. It's actually missing the first unstressed syllable, um, oh, which yeah. which makes it um, which makes it an even you just pay attention to it more. Not like when you're reading it, but when but when you hear it, um, you hear that missing. It, it makes you pause before that on his follies, which kind of makes a, a fun comedic. <laughs> moment like are you what is he enamored of exactly here yeah, kelly it, it, sorry <laughs> sorry yeah it's it's like the rim shot right <laughs> i'm gonna set up the joke and then i'm gonna i'm actually gonna follow it at the same time it kind um, of felt, oh go ahead i'm sorry kelly no go no, ahead. no go ahead Jackie. i was just gonna say it felt a little coriolanus where it's like like all these men are fighting but it's like do you is this really about fighting or do you guys have it in like do you feel have feelings for each other <laughs> you have do you have some love you feel some yeah. love yeah um well I do think I think kind of what you're saying once again it's like Shakespeare always kind of is the middle of the road of these you know these two things but there is a there is an aspect of chivalry that you know now we don't it's not quite as in our culture but you know if you read like the Camelot mythologies and things like that. The knights are definitely like praising the other knights that they're about to kill, but usually for the reason that's like, because I'm so good, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, this is the best and I'm actually going to go and beat the best, you well, know? So it, there's like an aspect of that too. Winning is, is so much sweeter when your adversary is that much, when you praise your adversary and is that much better than you are. So that so that winning becomes that much more significant. But, but I, I do. Oh, I was going to say I think Genevieve's right to note that like Hotspur has a rough time with that. Like when he meets Hal, I think he says something like, "I wish 
that you were more praiseworthy (laughs) so that when I beat you, this would actually be worth something. Whereas how clearly has done it like to the nth degree, right? So so much that it- Excessive, a little excessive, yeah. The the language in that response is just so great too. I just, I will embrace him with a soldier's arm that he shall shrink under my courtesy. It's just Mm -hmm. such a, oh, he was heaping me full of praise. Well, he'll fucking see how nice I am. I'm gonna fucking kill him with kindness like that's it's such it's such a good response and it, 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 it's so good yeah and also it's interesting because it's like um later on so he goes like okay let's go let's go and then he says better consider what you have to do than i that have not well the gift of tongue you can lift your blood and and just rereading it i'm like oh this is the moment where hotspur kind of admits i'm not so good with my words i'm a man mm. of, of my arms and my swords and, and I wonder if that's a moment of kind of an insecure slip that he lets out Ooh. like, yeah, this guy won you over because he's so good with his fucking words. I don't really have that, but blah, blah, blah. Also, sorry, Ariana, I don't remember if we're supposed to swear or not. On this oh, podcast. no, please swear away. <laughs> Fuck it all. Okay. Um, but I, I, I did want to say I love that point. That that would be sort of what I, I've, I've termed trademark an implied antithesis that essentially you're saying I can't do it. Mm. I know that we're all pl- praising how. Mm-hmm. Um, which is exactly what Vernon's whole speech has just been about, about the way in which he talks and the way in which he, you know, what Andrew was saying about the sort his sort of social graces, but I can't do that. I can only be me and, and really, and, and, and fight. Yeah. Um, uh, Coy, did you have uh, something as well? Yeah. In terms of the language of the speech Vernon's, I found it really interesting that the middle of it's full of all these P's. And it opens and closes with a lot of open sounds. And it just, mm. in the middle, you have praising and princes. So much praising, you dispraise praise. There's going over everywhere. But with Kelly talking about the chivalry, I think just reminds me of um, the idea of like uh, of organized crime in, in kind of epitomized in The Godfather. And the idea that, that the chivalry that we read about and the way that The Godfather presents um, organized crime, like that's the idealized version that, the fantasy that even the people in the moment wanted it to believe there was some sort of a something more important than just power and money. Don't forget so, the cannoli. Yeah, <laughs> but but really, like no one was actually that perfect. In the same right. way, I think chivalry, no one was that perfect the way that we like to think of it. And that's kind of what's nice about Shakespeare is he can kind of show when someone is as perfectly chivalrous as they're supposed to be by their station it actually still is shocking to a lot of people. Like, wow, mm-hmm. he's, he's actually doing that. As a, yeah. Yeah. I, also, I also kind of wondered if what was so shocking and what like startled Vernon so much about Hal was that like Hal addresses the elephant in the room, which is that like he knows that he's been a fuck up and he publicly owns that because I, it made me think of the first couple scenes with the king where the king is like, pretty openly saying to other people, my son sucks. I wish I literally had a different son. I wish I could switch my son in the night. And, um, and so for it's, it is still kind of stunning, even like in, in today's world for somebody to go like, I know this is my reputation and with a graceful response, I will both own it and say that I'm moving forward. But like, yeah. we're still surprised by people doing that. Cause I think I, myself, I guess I expect people to sort of. Imagine uh, the Donald that. doing that. Oof, impossible. <laughs> it's literally the only thing that would surprise me. I've said for two years now, the only thing that would surprise me in that situation is if someone was like, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And so I think that goes to Genevieve's Be point stunning. is being like, 
it is it is because you know like even public apologies by politicians these days are really more of excuses as to why they did what they did as yeah. opposed to being like oh i'm i'm sorry i i misjudged the situation so i do think it is very surprising to see a future king be like yeah i was exactly like my dad said i like totally messed up and now i'm going to like own it and like try to better myself it is really I mean, it's surprising to hear sort of any man or woman or anybody that's in a sort of position of power say that. So it is, you know, good on, good on, good on Billy. Humility. I mean, they all are Catholics. Like all the characters in this play are supposed to be read as Catholic and more to a degree, a certain lesser, but that right. Forgiveness is such a big part of that. And admitting the sin is such a big part of that specific branch of Christianity that I cannot help but feel that um, part of that too is like, oh, if you're going to be a good Christian king, you are honest about what you are, right? You do not deny what is there. You admit to it, you ask forgiveness. And in asking for forgiveness and admitting in the fault, you become saved in the eyes of God. And so much of this, like the echoes, it's been a long time since I've read St. Thomas Aquinas, but after having read this again, I would be really interested to reread St. Thomas Aquinas just to see if Shakespeare might have been like flipping through a copy of it <laughs> when he's writing this play, because that so much is the thing, right? St. Thomas is a saint because he was a sinner. He went to all the whorehouses. He was as rock and roll as you could possibly be. And then he found Jesus and nobody else should do that, but it's all good. And there's, it's such a redemptive Christian narrative that it's hard not to see that like, this is why he is going to be Henry V. And this is where the mid tetralogy tragedy is going to be, right? The sinner who has saved himself for England, no less, is going to die for all y'all sins. And then we're going to have to like get through Henry VI and Richard III before we can absolve ourselves fully of the thing. Yeah, totally. Kelly. I think what you're saying is fascinating, Sam, because it also sets up Henry VI so well, because, you know, he is the priest king and, um, and, but yet, you know, is considered weak by that point. Um, but I do think what's surprising in this moment is that, yes, that is definitely the, the Catholic narrative and the Christian narrative that would obviously have been like so prevalent at this time, especially as they're, you know, the religious wars are happening in England. But what's surprising is typically that happens at the end of a character's life. Yeah. You know, like you find the redemptive thing happening right before death. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. And like, take me to God. And then he's redeemed. And it's really surprising, even though Hal thinks he might be facing death in this moment, clearly it's, he's a young man. It's not the end of his life. And he's doing it now. And I think that is something that is very like, that is something we don't see in a lot of Shakespeare's plays. He's choosing to make his turn now. But what I mean, what I think that makes Hal a fascinating character is, is that I think this play would be really boring if he was like a kid who was like, I hang out with all the thieves, but in this moment, I must find myself rising to the occasion. As we've been talking about already, at the very beginning of the play, he's like, I know what this looks like, but I have a plan. And my plan actually happens to align with all of this Christian theology <laughs> for my benefit. And so I think that that's what makes him fascinating, right? Is, is that he has planned his turn out ahead of time. And 
I, I think that kind of maybe a question that you take back out into the world with you at the end of this whole movement is, yeah, but if you call your shot like that, does it, does it count? Like, does it count? Like if it's all planned, does your turn actually, mm. you know, because again, Henry is, Hal is not going to solve the original sin problem here, right? There are still going to be, by the time his story is over, there is four more plays left of sin that we have to wade through before we can do it. And like, I, I just, I'm, I'm fast because there's such a tendency to make everything evil and awful, like character wise to find like the lowest base note of even like a hero that you can play, like for me as an actor, and, and you can't, like, I think, Ari, you're completely right that the play completely falls apart. But I also think that you can't lose track of the plan that, like, it's happening early because he called it. Yeah, this is a plan. I, it's not a legitimate, you know? Yeah. No. Sorry I, for the I audience. I did a thing where I rose up. But <laughs> let, lest, lest we forget, yes, Dad, I will be more myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Do we have I just want to make sure we have another 30 minutes to go into the messenger lines because (laughs) I wrote I wrote a little bit of a dissertation on them and I just Oh coy, enlighten us. (laughs) Yeah. So when he first arrives, he has letters. Um and he wants to show them to Hosper. And then Hosper says no. And then he's like, Well, actually, I don't need to give you the letters because the king's here. That's the thesis. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. That's really nice. Well done. Well done. I love messengers in I Shakespeare. I think they're they're su- always supremely important. This is a wonderful comedic moment. It's like <laughs> it's like if Henry were in the middle of his like today is St. Crispin's Day and someone's like you just got a fax and he's like are you <laughs> shitting me? I'm in the middle <laughs> yeah. of my fucking speech, man. You know, yeah, like yeah, 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 such yeah, a yeah. great like <laughs> undercutting of this this rising rhetoric like I just I just really enjoy it and I I love that Hotspur settles on let each man do his best which is a very simple and kind of profound and beautiful statement I think um yeah uh yeah I would love to get into the chaos of the battle um and this blunt v Douglas which is our our first uh, uh fight this is one of the longer uh, and more complicated war sequences in a Shakespeare play. Um, and I, I would also just like to say that historically, uh, the Battle of Shrewsbury or Shrewsbury um, was one of the bloodiest of this particular era. It was, there were a huge, uh, inordinate number of casualties um, for, in terms of other, other battles. Um, and it was very bloody. There were a lot of, and it was longer than a lot of battles that were fought around this time. So just to keeping that in mind, and, um, I, I, I want to save, uh, my, my fun drop of, uh, my mic drop about what actually happened to Hal in this battle. Cause it's kind of extraordinary. So I'll, I'll wait until, um, I'll wait until that happens. So let's get into, uh, five, three which in, in some, in some uh, editions is actually a continuous scene from our, our previous one. What is thy name that in battle thus thou crossest me? What honor dost thou seek upon my head? Know then, my name is Douglas, and I do haunt thee in the battle thus, because some tell me that thou art a king. I tell thee true. The Lord of Stafford, dear today, hath bought thy likeness. For instead of thee, King Harry, this sword hath ended him. So shall it thee, unless thou yield thee as my prisoner. 
I was not born a yielder, thou proud Scot, and thou shalt find a king that will revenge Lord Stafford's death. Ooh, Douglas, hadst thou fought at Holmeden thus, I never had triumphed upon a Scot. All's done, all's won. Here, breathless, lies the king. Where? Here. This, Douglas? No, I know this face full well. A gallant knight he was, his name was Blunt. Sembably furnished, like the king himself. A fool. Go with thy soul, whither it goes. A borrowed title hast thou bought too dear. Why didst thou tell me that thou wert a king? The king hath many marching in his coats. Now by my sword, I will kill all his coats. I'll murder all his wardrobe, piece by piece, until I meet the king. Up and away, our soldiers stand full fairly for the day. Ah, though I could escape shot free at London, I fear the shot here. There's no scoring but upon the pate. Soft. Who are you? <gasps> Sir Walter Blunt. There's honor for you. Here's no vanity. I am as hot as molten lead and as heavy too. God keep lead out of me. I need no more weight than mine own bowels. I have led my ragamuffins where they are peppered. There's not three of my 150 left alive and they are for the town's end to beg during life. But who comes here? What stands thou idle here? Lend me thy sword. Many a nobleman lies stark and stiff under the hooves of vaunting enemies whose deaths are yet unrevenged. I prithee, lend me thy sword. Oh, Hal, I prithee, give me leave to breathe a while. Kirk Gregory never did such deeds in arms as I have done this day. I have paid Percy. I have made him sure. He is indeed and living to kill thee. I prithee lend me thy sword. Nay, before God, Hal, if Percy be alive, thou gettest not my sword. But take my pistol if thou wilt. Give it me. What is it in the case? I, Hal, tis hot, tis hot. There's that will sack a city. This is a bottle of sack. What, it is time... <laughs> What, is it a time to jest and dally now? Well, if Percy be alive, I'll pierce him. If he do come in my way, so. If he do not, if I come in his willingly, let him make a carbonado of me. I like not such grinning honor as Sir Walter hath. Give me life, which if I can save, so. If not... Honor comes unlooked for, and there's an end. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, <laughs> so we've got this uh, this Blunt Douglas fight. Um, uh, historically, this is uh, pretty accurate in terms of that uh, Blunt was said to probably have been killed because his armor very much resembled the king's armor on the battlefield, and he was. Oh, uh, I was wondering if it was like a strategic, you know. Yeah. put out a decoy that's what i heard i they think said others that others are doing it i think that that was the case that there were a lot of people on the king's side who made themselves look like the king in order to um to to go as decoys and in fact douglas killed three people so he thought he killed the during the course of this battle he thought he killed the king three times um 
which poor Douglas, I just love that. Like we get our first death. Blunt is such a great, like noble character. And then immediately we have this Douglas, like hilarious line. I'm going to murder his wardrobe. Right. Yeah. It's oh, just good. Like, it just strikes me. He's like so jacked up on adrenaline yeah. that like, it's so right. Funny, I was going to say Roy Rage. Say. Yeah. What a hilarious thing to say. Yeah. He's, and then we get like, there's honor. There's honor for you immediately. So it's like this, this very Shakespearean thing of mingling comedy with the sort of starkness of this death. Uh, go ahead, Sam. Oh, no, I was, I, I was just going it, to, it, it is such a, it's just such a funny line where it's like, I thought I killed the king. It's also just such a great retort to having thought that you had just killed the king, thus ending the battle and the whole rebellion in one fell swoop. And you're like, Fuck it! If they're all wearing his clothes, I'll kill him. It's it's so good. It's just so good. <laughs> yeah, not to, I don't know. Like to chart Douglas's path. Not the, <laughs> Douglas is not the protagonist of this play, but uh, to chart his path here, he wins the war. <laughs> and then Hotspur comes in and says, "Dude, if you'd fought that well when I was against you, like I wouldn't have beaten you." Which, like, what a thing to say <laughs> like, to going to Hotspur and not being able to give other people credit. And then Bob Douglas didn't win the war, right? So I think it's just a quite the crashing down. This could be a real a, a real comedic scene, I think. Oh, absolutely. And I think it it has to be in a yeah. certain way. Otherwise, it's just too much death. Like we yeah, need yeah. there's a reason Shakespeare puts Falstaff in the middle of this battlefield, yeah. probably robbing all the dead bodies as oh, he's like yeah. walking through the battlefields. It is there is something in the pistol holder. I love it. <laughs> yeah. There is something comically just morbid about battle and death and, mm. and all of it. Like, I feel like Blunt is sort of, it, how do you not look at that as sort of a comedic sacrifice, you know? Yeah. Well, it's really sad. I mean, it, 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 <laughs> it, is, it, it is really sad. But, I mean, of course it is sad, but it's like that, it's that like that bittersweet, I don't know. I think it's something... funny, but sad at the same time. Just like, just the... Yeah, I agree with Brittany. I think there's something really amazing in the in the moment when Hotspur enters the where here this Douglas, and then like because it it shows that in war like the absurd and the uh, well I mean I've never been in war so I'm speaking as with a lot of ignorance but it it seems to like indicate that there are a completely absurd moments right up to next to like your ex best friend is murdered body in front of you that is yeah. like the literal cost of this thing that you have uh, tried to achieve that is just like slamming up against each other and then we like don't have time for there to be a comedic moment and then a tragic moment that it's like everything's yeah. slapping up against each other yeah totally just the chaos I think that the Falstaff section is actually incredibly funny. <laughs> only so far as you think that the only reason why he's turning over that body is because it looks wealthy, right? Like that that's the only, like out of all, you got to assume that there's people dying left and right. And he goes soft. Who are you? Like to the courts, like he's, he, he's going over to one particular corpse. And the only thing in my mind why he would pick that corpse over any of the other bodies around him is that is one well-dressed corpse to loot. Right. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I think it is so funny to have that, just that deadpan, there's honor for you. Yeah. Like I, it, it, it is a, both a terribly tragic line, but it is also something really, it is, it's, it's like perfect gallows humor for me. It's like, it, he's, it's set up so perfectly from the last thing. And before you can lose track of that speech, 
you get the you get the follow you you are actually shown it. It's like that was the theory, and this is it in practice. Yeah. Uh, Mitch. Well, it's yeah, it's like when two characters walk on stage and you feel that we've they've been continuing a conversation. Falstaff is continuing the conversation he was just having with the audience, yeah. which is just interesting to chart throughout this battle that Falstaff is sort of, I, I think, continuously having this conversation with yeah. the audience in which he comments on the action. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and this, this, you know, this is such a, a an echo of his final line in scene five, in 5-3, um, where he says, if not, honor comes unlooked for, and there's an... Uh, no, that's this one. But it, it, I mean, in five one, um, honor is a mere scutcheon, and so ends my catechism. Mm. And if not, honor comes unlooked for, and there is an end. You know, it's mm. just like a, he, it, just as you say, Mitch is he's continuing. He's the message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I would love for us to move on to 5-4, um, just because I know we're going to want to talk about uh, more of these encounters. Um, but I also, here is my my big mic drop moment of how Hal was actually wounded. He was shot in the face with an arrow in the Battle of Shrewsbury. An arrow went into his cheek right. and uh, he... The reason we know this is there is an incredible account of the doctor that tended to him and the wound, of course, because disinfectant, not really a thing, got very infected, which also to me gives a lot more meaning to the Henry V wooing scene when he says, I know I'm not much to look at. There's something like, yeah, he's got this huge fucking arrow Scarface thing like going on. So I think it's it's important to understand when the king comes in saying, you are very injured, you need to get off the field, that historically that is actually what happened was he got shot, literally six shot in inches, Six inches into his skull. Yeah, like, whoa, like how did he freaking survive that? But anyway, that's that's my that's my mic drop moment. Um, yeah, let's let's get into it. Let's get into some father son second redemption and some hotspur hal and some emboweled false staff and all this fun stuff I prithee harry withdraw thyself thou bleedst too much lord john of lancaster go you with him not i my lord unless i did bleed too i beseech your majesty make up lest your retirement do amaze your friends i will do so my lord of westmoreland lead him to his tent Come, my lord, I'll lead you to your tent. Lead me, my lord, I do not need your help, and God forbid a shallow scratch should drive the Prince of Wales from such a field as this, where stained nobility lies trodden on, and rebels arm triumph in massacres. We breathe too long. Come, cousin Westmoreland, our duty this way lies. For God's sake, come! By God, thou hast it. Deceived me, Lancaster. I did not think thee lord of such a spirit. Before I love thee as a brother, John, but now I do respect thee as my soul. I saw him hold Lord Percy at the point with lustier maintenance than I did look for of such an ungrown warrior. <clears throat> Boylan's metal to us all. Another king. They grow like Hydra's heads. 
I am the Douglas, fatal <laughs> to all those that wear those colors on them. What art thou that counterfeits the person of a king? The king himself, who, Douglas, grieves at heart so many of his shadows thou hast met and not the very king. I have two boys seek Percy and thyself about the field, but seeing thou fallst on me so luckily, I will essay thee and defend thyself. I fear thou art another counterfeit, and yet, in faith, thou bearest thee like a king. But mine I am sure thou art, whoe'er thou be, and thus I win thee. Hold up thy head, vile Scot, or thou art like never to hold it up again. The spirits of valiant Shirley Stafford Blunt are in my arms. It is the Prince of Wales that threatens thee, who never promiseth, but he means to pay. Cheerily, my lord, how fares your grace? Sir Nicholas Gauzy hath for succor sent, and so hath Clifton, all to Clifton straight. Stay and breathe a while. Thou hast redeemed thy lost opinion and showed thou makest some tender of my life in this fair rescue thou hast brought to me. Oh, God, they did me too much injury that ever said I hearkened for your death. If it were so, I might have let alone the insulting hand of Douglas o'er you which would have been as speedy in your end as all the poisonous potions in the world and save the treasonous labor of your son. Make up to Clifton, all to Sir Nicholas Gauzy. If I mistake not, thou art Harry Monmouth. Thou speakest as if I would deny my name. My name is Harry Percy. Why then I see a very valiant rebel of the name. I am the Prince of Wales, and think not Percy to share with me in glory anymore. Two stars keep not their motion in one sphere, nor can one England brook a double reign of Harry Percy and the Prince of Wales. Nor shall it, Harry, for the hour is come to end the one of us, and would to God thy name in arms were now as great as mine. I'll make it greater ere I part from thee and all the budding honors on thy crest all crop to make a garland for my head. I can no longer brook thy vanities. Well, Hal, do it, Hal. Nay, you shall find no boys play here, I can tell you. Oh, Harry, thou hast robbed me of my youth. I better brook the loss of brittle life than those proud titles thou hast won of me. They wound my thoughts worse than thy sword my flesh, but thoughts the slaves of life and life time's fool and time that takes survey of all the world must have a stop. Oh, I could prophesy, but that the earthy and cold hand of death lies upon my tongue. No, Percy, thou art dust and food for- For worms. Brave Percy, fare thee well, great heart. Ill-weaved ambition, how much art thou shrunk when that this body did contain a spirit, a kingdom, for it was too small a bound, but now two paces of the vilest earth is room enough. This earth that bears thee dead 
bears not alive so stout a gentleman. If thou wert sensible of courtesy, I should not make so dear a show of zeal, but let my favors hide thy mangled face, and even in thy behalf I'll thank myself for doing these fair rites of tenderness. Adieu, and take thy praise with thee to heaven. Uh, thy ignominy sleep with thee in the grave, but not remembered in thy epitaph. What? Old acquaintance? Could not all this flesh keep in a little life? Oh, poor Jack, farewell. I could have better spared a better man. Oh, I should have a heavy miss of thee if I were much in love with vanity. Death hath not struck so fat a deer today, though many dearer in this bloody fray. Emboweled will I see thee by and by. Till then, in blood by noble Percy lie. Emboweled? If thou embowel me today, I'll give you leave to powder me and eat me too tomorrow. So blood, t'was time to counterfeit, or that hot termagant Scott had paid me Scott and lot too. Counterfeit? I lie. I am no counterfeit. To die is to be a counterfeit, for he is but the counterfeit of a man who hath not the life of a man. And when a man thereby liveth is to be no counterfeit, but the true and perfect image of life indeed. The better part of valor is discretion, in the which better part I have saved my life. Zooms, I am afraid of this gunpowder, Percy, though he be dead. How if he should counterfeit too and rise? By my faith, I am afraid he would prove the better counterfeit. Therefore, I'll make him sure. Yea, and I'll swear I killed him. May he not rise as well as I? Nothing confutes me but eyes, and nobody sees me. Therefore, Sirrah, with a new wound in your thigh, come along you with me. Come, Brother John, full bravely hast thou fleshed thy maiden sword. But soft, whom have we here? Did not you tell me this fat man was dead? I did. I saw him dead, breathless and bleeding on the ground. Art thou alive, or is it fantasy that plays upon our eyesight? I prithee speak, we will not trust our eyes without our ears. Thou art not what thou seemest. No, that's certain. I am not a double man. But if I be not Jack Falstaff, then I am a Jack. There is Percy. If your father will do me any honor, so. If not, let him kill the next Percy himself. I'll look to be either Earl or Duke, I can assure you. Why, Percy, I killed myself and saw thee dead. Didst thou? Lord, Lord, how this world is given to lying. I grant you I was down and out of breath, and so was he. But we rose both at an instant and fought a long hour at Shrewsbury clock. If I may be believed, so. If not, let them that should reward valor bear the sin upon their own heads. I'll take it upon my death. 
I gave him this wound in the thigh. If the man were alive and would deny it, Zooms, I would make him eat a piece of my sword. This is the strangest tale that ever I heard. <laughs> this is the strangest fellow, Brother John. Come, bring your luggage nobly on your back. For my part, if a lie may do thee grace, I'll gild it with the happiest terms I have. The trumpet sounds retreat. The day is ours. Come, brother, let us to the highest of the field to see what friends are living who are dead. I'll follow, as they say, for reward. He that rewards me, God reward him. If I do grow great, I'll grow less. For I'll purge and leave sack and live cleanly as a nobleman should do. Lovely. <laughs> do you, do we believe Falstaff is really going to do all that stuff? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, I th my my uh, baby sister's favorite uh, line from Shakespeare when I asked her to choose was the better part of valor is discretion because it's yes. just such TM. a great like it's such a Shakespearean like truism that's like it's so funny I just, oh I just love it um, but spoken by Falstaff it's 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 really undercutting oh my god so yeah so much so um, I mean as opposed to spoken by Hotspur yeah. spoken by Falstaff it's an entirely different meaning yeah absolutely absolutely and I, I love this the uh powder me and eat me to tomorrow powder me in this sense means like add salt to and pickle me oh. um which we've had a lot of pickling imagery to do with <laughs> Falstaff, uh, the soused gurnet and like all of these pickled herring and all this. It's, it's, it's kind of funny. I don't know what his obsession is with pickled fish, but um, maybe they're just yummy. Um, yeah. Anyway. So, wow. There's so many little sections to this, to this scene. So we start off with this, this wonderful little, little moment, the Royal family and, and Westmoreland um, all together. And um and I think I, I always the way I picture this is that it's just utter chaos and up is down and down is up. And they're sort of just moving in a pack in order to sort of be able to look in all directions at the same time. And Hal's got this gaping big wound and his baby brother, Lancaster. So in the actual battle, Hal was 16. So Lancaster is probably very, 13. very, very I think I looked young. up, he was 13. Yeah. Yeah incredibly young um to be to be on this on this battlefield but had a had, had a fight with hotspur you know that's that's kind of an incredible thing that he survived this this fight with hotspur um and it's it's an interesting look into the relationship between the the brothers we finally get a, a tiny little well i'm glad that they closed this plot point up because sort of the brothers not being friends with one another throughout the entirety of this play as you know i mean they talk about it but they never really interact so like the whole thing where he's like i do respect thee as my soul now just feels a little it's one of those shakespeareisms where there's this whole other story that goes on that you're mm -hmm. sort of supposed to be aware of that resolves and you're like wait a minute i that hasn't been really part of this play so I think much it, so far it it works better in production because it always in all the scenes with the king 
in order to actually have people, it's like Lancaster has to be there. So I think it, it works much better in production to sort of have Lancaster as this presence that you associate with the king. And then there's obviously like a some looks that are exchanged in that very important scene with Hal and his father. And I think Lancaster has to be there at the beginning of that scene. So there's ways of setting it up, I think. Yeah, Mitch. I've always liked him, like in production. I've always liked John, I, I think, because yeah. I have brothers. Um, and like, that's <laughs> always been interesting to me. But I've been thinking, like, why is he here? And and yeah. I think the answer is, of course, to do with Hal, right? It's, it's, it's Hal reclaiming his rightful position in the family, because like, we mm. know that John has been, like, filling his position in the council, right yeah. and john has sort of been being this older brother and so like how coming back in and having a younger brother like he and the king can talk about like how proud they are like john of lancaster is like returned to his secondary status which is like that's right that's what should happen for this 13 year old mm, that makes a lot of sense and, and the funny thing is that he he hal has two other brothers <laughs> that aren't mentioned at all in this play yeah. but that um will be with us in uh in both henry the fourth part two and in henry the fifth they go with him to france um so it's very it's very they're they're all very important um and good on henry the fourth for um having four sons in this time when mm. <laughs> that pretty much guarantees that you have a, a pretty um a pretty good lock on the throne that uh, are alive four sons yeah 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 exactly um so we have that that wonderful little moment and then um then we get this sort of showdown with um the king and douglas um and I, I, I love this because there's such a sort of tongue in cheek. I fear thou art another counterfeit, of course, in a certain way, Henry is the counterfeit king, you know? So there's, there's, there's some interesting truth woven into the, to Douglas's like, are you just faking and pretending to be the king? Well, kind of, yeah, <laughs> you know? Um, so there's some interesting uh, things going on on there. And then, um, and then Hal comes in and, um, has tries to save his father and he doesn't kill Douglas. He sort of chases him off. And then we have this, this beautiful little moment with the King and Hal and Hal has this wonderful speech. And I, I think it's, it's very telling that the King doesn't really respond to it. It's a very odd moment where instead of sort of saying after, after Prince Hal is like, what I think is very kind of emotional outburst of like these people that have been bad mouthing me. I didn't really realize how much they've been bad mouthing me. And my God, I mean, I, I, I hope we can move past this. And then the King sort of is like giving him instructions instead of sort of uh, dwelling on it, which is interesting to me. Well, there is an interesting moment there because right. Cause if he just lets this play out, he'll be king yeah like if, if if he dies right there and he doesn't protect his father he is then the king of england but i find that line again of just like information that's been uh kept from sort of the audience or things oh, oh god they that did me too much injury that ever said i hearkened for your death have we ever heard another character as, as we've heard a lot of people say that Hal has done a lot of shitty things but has a character ever said that they heard that Hal was wishing for his father's death. No, but Hal, Hal also references this rumor another time. So I don't know if it's yeah. a straw man or if it's real. Yeah, no, but I, but I think it's in the air. And right. I think that that's really fascinating that, that 
that's like a person, like, I guess that this one per out of all of the slights that he's perceived that people believe about him in this moment, it is the death of his yeah. father that if there is one that you can know that I really never wished for, that's the one, yeah. which is powerful for fathers and sons and reclaiming that in the play. But Henry, Henry does say in, in act three that, um, that he thinks he that he thinks that Hal could could follow Hotspur, you yeah. know, could be paid and to fight on his yeah. side and against him. Yeah. So I it's see. straight out there. Yeah. And that is his big complaint on his deathbed uh, when he thinks that Hal has stolen the crown from his deathbed. Um, when Hal, in fact, thought that he was dead um, and has this amazing speech where he sort of chastises mm -hmm. the crown for all of the years it's taken off of his father and how much it's harmed his father psychologically. Um, yeah, Mitch. I, I can imagine this being a really um, emotional moment or touching moment for, for King Henry because of what Sam just said, which is like, I think he's aware Mm -hmm. that if if he had died how would become king and how could have let that happen and i wonder i don't know i wonder if the answer to why he doesn't i mean he says it at first he says you know yeah. you are back in my good graces but i wonder if the reason he doesn't belabor it is like he he can't go there emotionally while on the battlefield yeah. or if it's or if it's that he's something else and angry and upset absolutely well, but, also, but also it's that this is the way a king behaves this is what's at hand mm. yeah we can't it's this isn't the time to have this talk yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> we'll do it later dear <laughs> yeah. we'll have a cuppa together it'll be good we'll sort everything out absolutely and so then after hal has this huge emotional moment he's just fought the freaking douglas then in comes hotspur bold as brass like this badass like i don't even know what and they have this amazing sort of tease of each other before they go into this fight yeah a little fight with words <laughs> tell us about that <laughs> um, i think it feels like hotspur is like i'm gonna cut you off before this is a page long thing where you like it feels like he's like let's get to it i i'm here <laughs> you're you let's go i don't do this yeah absolutely i i i always find that line so striking of of how's the two stars keep not their motion in one sphere and one yeah. England can't brook like we can't both win. Mm -hmm. So it's so time it's for one of us to go <laughs> in, in speaking it. I think the thing that sets it up amazingly is just their, their single line introductions to one another. Oh, yeah. um, and thou speakest as if I would deny my name feels like a very powerful way for Hal to start like, that line felt really good and powerful in my mouth as a retort where I think inside, if we, again, if we were in production, cause it's not written into the script, but there would be like just terror underneath it. Right. Oh, like man. that's the way that I see it. The dude who's like, I just managed, I didn't defeat the Douglas. I managed to make him run away, but now, now I'm, I'm wounded. I'm in trouble. And, and, I'm holding on to this language here because there's just a deep pit of terror in my, in my tummy. It's also so revealing of their characters that like everything I was saying as house was so direct. My name mm. is Harry Percy. 
I mean, it's my, I am the Douglas moment, but, um, and then the Prince is really still so much more adept with using language, which I think like we've been, uh, as I've been listening to y'all talk about the, the fight choreography of this would be so it revealed in their fighting too, that, that like the words leading up to the fight and reveal that the style that they're going to play this game of chess kind of. Mm. Um, I love that I can no longer brook thy vanities. Yes. <laughs> Just like the man is himself to the end. And I don't know, even the, right at the end of his life, Hotspur is like trying to kind of prophecy metaphor. Oh, <laughs> no, Percy, stop it. <laughs> this isn't my wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah. Like, just in my mind, it, it, this is almost like a very sort of Star Wars-esque like lightsaber fight to me in my head. Like oh, when, when you talk about like, or having done fight night, like if, if you do think of duels, this feels like sort of the dueliest of duels to me between two characters. Oh, yeah. Just also because of, I like just that opening line. Like I, I so feel like Hal almost has his back to him and that first two lines, like, or like gunslingers or something, you know, where like Hotspur yes. already has his hand right there and like across with the back turn. And like, if I mistake not that or without even turning around, the prince is like, thou speakest as you would deny, yes. like, if I would deny my name. And then you have like the turn and the, um, the picked up line between my name is Harry Percy. And then why then I see is such a cool way to automatically uh, intimately link those two characters like verbally right there. They are already finishing each other's lines and the sparring before they've even drawn swords is happening right there in the dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's a really cool structural thing that Shakespeare has done in the text. It's Absolutely. Also so, it's also something both of them have talked about for the whole play that we're gonna yeah. do. It's like, we gotta do it. We gotta, we both said, this is the one, this is the battle to end all battles. And like, so I don't know, just listening to our conversation now, I'm like, oh, these are relatively young. I mean, they're, they're men, but they're like, oh, it's down to these two boys to like determine this country's fate, which is really intense. Yeah, but it also is like a Friday night lights feel to me, right? Like two sons mm. there on the honor of their father on the football field, <laughs> the two quarterbacks, you know, <laughs> facing yeah. each other down at the thing. They're, they're like that is so inside of it too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Koi, uh, I think I think Sam's point about this being a really good scene for a duel is really interesting because having gone through a lot of scenes looking for dual scenes to do certification fights, there aren't many. There are really not that many good scenes that have who the characters are, what their conflict is in that scene. And, and you don't have to make massive additions or cuts or, or all this stuff. So it is actually really rare to find, not just in Shakespeare, but like all classical literature and even some modern films to find a film that, you could take half a page or a page and say, I know who's fighting. I know why they're fighting. I know what the conflict is. I know the differences between them. It's all there. So it is kind of when we have this moment, it is a good point by, by Sam to kind of be like, yeah, this is a really uh, bottled moment that you could take into any genre or any style. And it would fit because all the whole story is there. Yeah, that's a that's a wonderful point. I mean, the the other ones in Shakespeare that sort of spring to mind is like Edgar and Edmund at the end of King mm -hmm. Lear. And, um, you know, um, oh, Romeo wow. and Juliet, you have Tybalt and yeah. Romeo's a big, like in Paris and Romeo. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it says something about um, when Shakespeare gives you the setup. I think it's almost like 
like a out of respect for the person who's going to die. Like, I think it says something about like Hotspur, right? That he gets both the setup to his death and then a dying speech. Although mm-hmm. I also really am, am liking this idea that this, this dying speech is not particularly articulate. Oh, no. um, and I can't, <laughs> and like, he doesn't get the last word out. There's no. this yeah. like Olivier apparently like uh, played Hotspur and famously played him with a stutter, which is like, I think very on the nose, but I, I hadn't ever really understood it until hearing you talk Genevieve about like this um, level of uh, almost insecurity about his ability with words compared to how it's, it's interesting to think about. That is really interesting to think about. I mean, the, the thing that felt that, that dying, it felt so like, wow, they gave him a, a chance to talk. Um, he doesn't really like to talk, but, but it feels like maybe he's discovering like maybe at the end. And I, I also think there's something so heartbreaking and strange about this man that, that for Hotspur, that it's, it's worse that Hal has taken his titles. Like they wound my thoughts worse than I sword my flesh is like, he's so invested in his role and his identity and like mm. the power structure that he's, it just, I don't know. It was it's like, Oh, this is, where I have something a poetic or, um, you know, profound to say, and, uh, it's really hurts. Uh, I don't want to, I'm not, re- uh, and then dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Koi. <laughs> yeah. In terms of what Mitchell was just saying to bounce off of the, that like the hey this is a this is a you know the person who dies is going to be important i think it's also um thinking of of shakespeare at the time as being these long long shows longer than what we like to use them today um and i know from from my experience doing chinese opera a lot of the reason of doing these long shows is that you have some of them are not that interesting to a lot of people and you kind of watch them throughout the day and talk through it so this type of a moment of Oh, Hotspur coming on, having a moment to introduce himself, Prince. You know, and everyone's like, "Hey, oh, oh, it's the, it's the fight. It's the good one. It's, a, it's a good fight." Okay, we can pay attention now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you need time for everyone to shut the hell up. Yeah. yeah, I remember having just as a like a side note that I I sound designed the and costume designed and everything designed the the show that I directed, and I had so much fun with the sound design in this moment because I had built this very very elaborate um, battle sort of fully environment and then as Hotspur stepped on stage I just had this room and the the all of the battle sounds like completely disappeared and they actually spoke and it, it because the audience because you'd been so used to listening to like fighting and arrows shooting overhead and whatever it became it was like the silence was like deafening after that and then they they were able to do this at a very sort of sotto voce um, kind of thing and then as soon as they had the first swing the battle whoom, came right back up and was like a very much a part of the environment again but um, anyway really fun as a sound designer to, to get to work on that um, and then we we have this this very interesting sort of how reflecting on mortality yeah yeah Sam well no because I really wanted to get to this I was hoping that we weren't going to go straight to Falstaff I find the speech I find the speech that he says over Hotspur's death fascinating yeah like because the first half of it does have like how it's it's kind of he's both gloating and he's both putting praise on it but then he's also gloating and then he 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 thanks himself (laughs) which I think is really 
like like a really interesting thing that happens. Like I was trying to parse that. I've, I'm still trying to parse exactly what's going on in that final last little bit where that praise for himself happens. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 it's a very weird little thing that he says over the death because it is complicated. There's compliments, there's a couple insults, and then he praises himself at one point. Yeah. It's like, I'm not used to that. I always generally think of these, like when another character laments, even if it's a foe, they tend to be these kind of flowery, almost crazy things. And you have like half of that, but it's not fully there. Um, and and I, I, I am, I've been trying to really parse that. Uh, where is it? Uh, if thou wert sensible of courtesy, I should not make so dear a show of zeal, but let my favors hide thy mangled face. And even in thy behalf, I'll thank myself for doing these fair rites of tenderness. Yeah, it's it's um it's pretty out there. <laughs> it's also just reinforces the complexity of Hal's thoughts, right? Like when we yeah. talked about it earlier when he was kind of tripping over himself. He has this wonderful capacity to talk about how the other person would think and how he would think of the other person thinking of him and the the really depth of intelligence that he's showing. Yeah, Mitch He's definitely a person who his whole life has been a, aware of a, a public image of himself and a private image of himself. Because what he's saying is, if you were here and could see this, I wouldn't be this nice to you. Um, and I, I also have not quite parsed why that is, but it, it strikes me that that's how his mind works. He definitely is always aware of what people are seeing mm. and what's actually going on in between as potentially separate things. And then just to, to shift into his, what he says over what he thinks is Falstaff's body just um, is, uh, is, I think it's, it's very, it's very moving um, because, well, first of all, because he, he's in the intimate thy for both of these characters, which is interesting. And he 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 sticks with intimacy in this weird way even though it's a very vulnerable moment for him i mean he's just done the thing he set out to do but also has suffered this huge loss of his um best friend for for all he knows at this in this moment and it's almost like it's it's too many changes in one in one moment um there's too many reality shifts in this in this in this time and then of course he has to make a joke like he makes several yeah yeah <laughs> like but sparing no, a spare a better man <laughs> i could have oh better God. spared a better man is a fantastic a fantastic turn of phrase but could not all of his flesh kept in a little life yeah um yeah a death hath not struck so fat a deer today and then punning deer with mm -hmm. deer um emboweled bowel um you know they're in there but it is the first time i did read through this on my own i thought for sure that he kind of knew that falstaff was alive and he was saying like doing the fat jokes to like get a rise out of him and then i reread it again and what happened afterwards and i was like i the way that i took it now is is that like this is what him and his friend used to do they used to banter back and yeah. forth and now he's trying to banter with a corpse and that feels really sad to me um so yeah that makes a lot of sense to me also that it would be 
his only way of dealing with this is to resort to what he loved most about Falstaff, which is the way they would insult each other to the utmost end. He can't lose it. I think Lynn was talking about, um, you know, there's a battle going on uh, with Henry before. And I I think that is instructive of a lot of these like potentially emotional moments, right? Oh, I should Mm -hmm. have a heavy miss of the, if I were much in love with vanity, right? Like if I, if I cried, I guess, right. A lot, like I would cry a bunch for you. Like it very much feels like he can't have, he can't lose it right yeah. now. Give it. There's all Give this into stuff it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Battle's horn has not honked yet. The battle is not over. Yeah. And then we get this amazing, I mean, the timing on this, it just has to be impeccable with Hal's exit. And then, the imbow like i think it's great if there's like a we get a an exhale from the audience and then imbowled you know it's just like such a great like it's like a release of tension it just lets everyone breathe at that moment it's wonderful um he says he says counterfeit nine times yeah it's amazing it's amazing well and he uses it both as like a noun and a verb, which right, I love. Yeah, yeah. It's such a Shakespeare thing to do. Um, yeah. To counterfeit, and I am a counterfeit, and right. and um, and just what an incredible speech. Yeah, and I he would prove a better counterfeit. I love him talking about Hotspur. Like yeah. he, he he's better at pretending. Because <laughs> yeah. um, well, because he's dead. Yeah, exactly. But also that like, if he were alive, he would probably be better at, at also being a counterfeit, you know, there, there's something, there's just something supremely funny and such a relief for us after all of this sort of drama and coming of age moments. (laughs) There's just like, it just gives us such a wonder. It's like the Porter in oh, um yeah. in in mackers you know it like gives us a moment to breathe and exhale and whoo and just shake it off a little bit um yeah yeah i love this um i'm not a double man yeah as well <laughs> like i'm not a ghost i'm not a ghost don't curse me but um yeah what what are what no are i just like lancasters no i just like did you not tell me this fat man was dead? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a series of very funny lines at the end here, um, which is really, is really nice. And poor, poor Falstaff also has to exit with Hotspur's body, which is like, <laughs> what a dignified way to go. <laughs> poor Hotspur, <laughs> poor too, Hotspur. gets stabbed again. His dead body gets stabbed again. Then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And it is actually, this is really important what Hal says here about uh, if a lie may do thee grace, I'll gild it with the happiest terms I have. This is the reason that essentially purges Falstaff of his uh, criminal record in the next play was that he is the reputation for doing good service at Shrewsbury. And this is why a lot of the charges for the robbery were dropped against him. so this is this is another important decision on on Hal's part. <laughs> it's incredible. He, he he saved the day, and he's going to give up credit for yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that goes to like a community thing, right? I think that the Hal seems to have like an attitude that a rising tide lifts all ships, and like amongst that whole crew, there is this belief that as Hal ascends, he'll take all of them with them to like you know this 
this idea that will never happen of this sort of thieves paradise in England, you know, under Hal's reign. And I think that in this particular moment, like Hal doesn't yet know that he fully has to cleave Falstaff out of his life. And on the other hand, he's so happy his friend is alive. Like if I thought my best friend was dead and then he told me this ridiculous story about how actually he's the one who killed Percy, I would be like, you know what, dude? Like, you're alive. Sure, you killed Percy. What? I'm the prince. I'm the prince. I don't need, I don't need that. You need that. I don't need that. You're alive. Like, and it's it's such a human moment. It's amazing. Absolutely. It's really lovely. Well, shall we conclude our 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 um our play here with the final a final scene um with the royal family and Worcester and Vernon who have been captured. Thus ever did rebellion find rebuke. Ill-spirited Worcester, did not we send grace, pardon and terms of love to all of you? And wouldst thou not and wouldst thou turn our offers contrary, misuse the tenor of thy kinsman's trust? Three knights upon our party slain today, a noble earl and many a creature else had been alive this hour. If like a Christian thou hadst truly borne betwixt our armies true intelligence. What I have done, my safety urged me to, and I embrace this fortune patiently, since not to be avoided, it falls on me. Bear Worcester to the death and Vernon too. Other offenders we will pause upon. How goes the field? The noble Scot Lord Douglas, when he saw the fortune of the day quite turned from him, The noble Percy slain and all his men under the foot of fear fled with the rest. And falling from a hill, he was so bruised that the pursuers took him. At my tent, the Douglas is, and I beseech your grace, I may dispose of him. With all my heart. Then, Brother John of Lancaster, to you this honor, bounty shall belong. Go to the Douglas and deliver him up to his pleasure, ransomless and free. His valor shown upon our crests today hath taught us how to cherish such high deeds, even in the bosom of our adversaries. I thank your grace for this high courtesy, which I shall give away immediately. And this remains that we divide our power. You, son John, and my cousin Westmoreland toward York shall bend you with your dearest speed to meet Northumberland and the prelate Scroop, who, as we hear, are busily in arms. Myself and you, son Harry, will toward Wales to fight with Glendower and the Earl of March. Rebellion in this land shall lose his way, meeting the check of such another day. And since this business so fair is done, let us not leave till all our own be one. Bravo. Wow. So Woo-hoo! this last little two rhyming couplets seems to me an awful lot like the first speech of the play um, of saying no more shall trenching war channel her fields and bruise her flowerets with the armed hooves. And here we have rebellion in this land shall lose its sway. It's like, to me, this makes the play come completely full circle. Um, I made the very controversial decision to kill Worcester and Vernon on stage 
in this, in, in my production, I had two of the soldiers cut their throats immediately after the death order came because to me, what is missing a little bit from the end of this is how the immediate consequences that this violence has on this entire Percy family, that um, their family is all but wiped out by this rebellion. Um, and it's, and poor freaking Vernon, he did, it wasn't his idea and he gets killed too. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's anyway, I, yeah. I always find this final scene very disturbing. I don't know why. Um, I, I have, can I? Yeah, yeah, please. I think it's the, the first line of this is really, really, really scary in terms of the entire play. Thus ever did rebellion find rebuke because the man who is saying it has not faced a single rebuke yet for his rebellion. And yet on top of that irony is the irony that he will be rebuked. The whole line will be rebuked for the original rebellion that happened because it is still... The whole tetralogy is about paying the price for that original sin and that, that, that echoing, that foiling of being incorrect because his didn't find rebuke, but being correct because he just rebuked this rebellion. But then later on, entirely, this whole misbegotten rebellion is going to be rebuked by the end of the tetralogy. Um, I think adds a real pall, like a real dissonant note that ends the play and carries out through the rest of the scene. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think there's something to uh, have how perhaps having witnessed this, this was another thing was to give Hal something to react against for the um, bearing Worcester to the death in Vernon too. And then Hal making the decision to not kill Douglas and actually, um, that is a huge decision and that is exactly contrary to the decision that his father just made. Yeah, Kelly. It's funny because uh, this is kind of the only time, Sam, in what you're talking about that the history, you know, like the, the backstory is very important. And if you're coming into this, you've talked a lot about like for marketing purposes, <laughs> you don't want to have people have to do the homework. So it's almost like you want the Star Wars crawl at the beginning being like, <laughs> It is the time of the rebellion, you know, <laughs> just to be like, here's what just happened prior to this. Like this king is on the throne illegitimately. And you kind of want that because it does make these last lines land so powerfully mm-hmm. to say that it's like, I mean, it is such a hypocritical thing to say, but of course Henry has to believe it. You know, of course he has to be like, no, no, no. Like I'm the king and that's the way it is now. And, but as you say, we're going to work toward, as we go through these plays, we're going to work toward the absolution of that. Absolutely. And, and Henry V, literally on the eve of the Battle of Agincourt, in his prayer says, I reinterred Richard's body. I'm paying 200 poor people to pray for him weekly. And I've got the clergy doing all, and I'll do more, just please help me out here. And it's like, there's this interesting acknowledgement of this original sin being perhaps the thing that will tip the scales of, of, of the very famous Battle of Agincourt. Really what tipped the scales was uh, the advances in bows and arrows, but <laughs> you know, there we go. Um, yeah. 
archery advancement, <laughs> weapons, right? And technology advancement is really what made all the difference in that particular battle. Um, but yeah, any, any, uh, Lynn, do you have any final thoughts on, on the Henry in this, in this final scene as he sort of sums up what we've seen? Well, I, I just think it's, um, you know, the journey is not the one that he really wants to take. And he said that in the very beginning, you know, <laughs> and he took it and it played out not the way he wanted it to play out. Um, as he said, where it's just, I just find the imagery in the beginning about the, the blood, you know, the earth daubing her lips, you know, with the blood of, uh, the people and, and, and as, uh, you know Hotspurs dies and 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 he's you know those that that line that he doesn't finish his food for you know and it's like yeah. the his blood is seeping into the earth and and um it's just so the endless cycle yeah of mankind the species you know absolutely and it's interesting that this imagery shows up in the histories, only the the blood soaked earth, really strongly in civil disputes, not mm -hmm. in the foreign disputes. Right, mm -hmm. this idea that there is something unnatural about these countrymen spilling each other's blood, although mm -hmm. not unnatural about them going to war with the French. Right, so that's an interesting. It's it's interesting how much this imagery is associated with civil dispute. Um, but yeah, I, I yeah, Kelly. But once again, that goes to your point about like the sort of rally cry of this whole play at the beginning is go fight foreign wars, yes. you know, <laughs> like as long as they're not at home, foreign wars, nothing brings a country together like a foreign war. That is so accurate. And that's exactly what actually Henry is going to say to Hal on his deathbed. He's going to say, look, here's what you got to do. You need to go invade somewhere like well you need to go invade somewhere. It's and terrifying, like, right? Let me take that advice and run with it. <laughs> and we still do it. That's why yeah. it's so terrifying. Absolutely. Uh, Koi. Yeah, I think I think the, the patriotism that exists in Shakespeare's texts, how pro-English they are and how insanely pro-English everything is even, I mean, the history is on a different scale than his other works because he's pretending they're in other places but as someone who who grew up outside of the states it really reminds me of watching things like independence day or like any summer blockbuster because if you're not from this i think when you're when you're living in the states you don't realize how much iconography is in these movies and the references and everything about america being great i mean obviously michael bay throws in the, the hundred foot flags but they're there in all of these films and it was only when i started re like studying shakespeare that i realized how insane shakespeare's exact same in terms of the patriotism mm. um you, you i i read it and it feels like watching a michael bay film which is <laughs> fluttering flags like oh, england's so great <laughs> there's nothing stronger than nationalism it's stronger than your attachment to family. Your attachment to country is the strongest feeling you have. But what's what's I think what's also interesting is that I think Shakespeare complicates that very much yeah. by having a character like Falstaff and having yeah. all of the characters like Bardolph and Nim and Pistol and yeah. these people who go into France, they're going to war and they rob the church and then they get hanged for it. You know, and they there is something 
you know, let's go back to King John commodity, the bias of the world, right? That self-interest is actually what drives a lot of this patriotism actually. Mm -hmm. And what Mm -hmm. drives a lot of this rhetoric is really about what is the best thing for me. For me. Um, Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I also, uh, I really, really loved the the idea of the three time periods, like the three locations and the three times uh, mm-hmm. as a as a kind of way to view this text uh, on a different, you know, and I think it's appropriate and it, it could work for, as a unifying theory for the actors, for the designers, the director. I think that's, that's really cool that you uh, f- found that, Ari. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Sam. <laughs> Continuing my justice for Worcester theme um, of this evening, I just want to point out that Worcester dies a very honorable, also linking it back to Falstaff and good death. Mm. Doesn't fight the charge at all. Just very quickly explains that that's what my safety urged me to do. I embrace the fortune and it's not avoided and I'm here right now. So it falls to me and just accepts that death. And I, I, I think that's a really interesting coda for that character as we've seen them throughout the entirety of the play. I, I totally agree. I'm actually a very big Worcester fan. I think, I think yeah. um, in terms of the political figures in the play, I think it's, he's definitely um, up there with King Henry as sort of being the most um, brilliant political minds in, in, in the play. Um, and we see some of the tactics from both sides continue into the next, uh, into part two. Um, and actually, little John of Lancaster defeats all the rebels almost single-handedly by persuading them that he is going to be nice to them and then arresting them promptly after they all have a glass of wine together. So um, he, he becomes quite a, um, quite a cunning uh, politician. And, uh, and I think that's, kind of what we learn from this play is the the important um the importance of of political learning to these these ruling dynasties um yeah well wonderful everyone thank you so much thank you for this wonderful exploration